All right. Well, we got a good crew here, so let's uh, let's go ahead and get going. Um, and um, so we, the, you know, in the origin of this, Arian, I thought you might might kick us off because I think the the origin of this is is your tweet, which I I loved. I mean, a a, a measurement two years in the making, uh, which really gets to kind of the odyssey we've gone on here. Um, so, do you want to sc- describe um, kind of at the outset what we've actually built and and what some of the challenges were? So in the beginning, <laughs> no. Um, uh, what do we build? Well, so uh, super quick. Um, what we what I showed in the tweet was a measurement of the backplane cabling that we're using between our switch and our compute sled, and uh, in particular, what it shows is a uh, a TDR measuring the full channel of the cable connected to two circuit boards through the connectors using probes that are touching the, the the printed circuit boards on like both printed circuit boards each on one side so you can measure through the entire stack like everything um and what that lets us do is it will let us extract uh some performance data about you know how well the signal will travel through the pcb through the connectors into the cables through the cables out the connectors and then into the pcb and then ultimately uh, through the pads and then where the chips then would be that then are connected to each other um so that's pretty exciting. So I'm going to have, and I'm just going to apologize, apologize in advance for uh, starting with a bunch of questions. You mentioned a TDR measurement. You want to describe what that is briefly? How about uh, Eric describes a TDR <laughs> measurement? Sure. I'll, 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 I'll gracefully back away. From <laughs> exactly. Acronyms. There, there's two. There's two ways of measuring a channel, and a channel is basically just defined as a set of wires that goes from some source to some destination in a high-speed link, uh, in our case. So the two main ways of doing a measurement of how good or bad that link is, is are the an S-parameter measurement using a VNA, which is a vector network analyzer, and a measurement using a weight, a TDR, which is a time domain optometer uh, that we were using from LaCroix, Teledyne LaCroix, that's known as a, a wave pulser. So a VNA basically sends out a sine wave, and it looks at how much of the sine wave gets through and how much of the sine wave gets reflected back, because some of it, you know, like a wave hitting a, uh, a wave hitting a, a, a rock and a pool or something tends to send a wave backwards because it's a, a discontinuity. So the machines measure that reflection and the transmission and how much of that, that sine wave gets through, and that tells you how good or bad the, the channel is. A TDR sends a pulse. Uh, so it's, it, you know, for, for those of us who remember math, and I remember just enough to be dangerous, uh, if you send a, an impulse function, so a delta function, which is an infinitely narrow uh, unit pulse down a transmission line, the FFT of that is basically all frequencies. And so a TDR tries to approximate that using a, a known pulse, and it sends that pulse down, and it looks at how much of that pulse is reflected back and what the shape is and how much of the pulse gets through. And so there's benefits in detractions either way, but the, the way we're using is a TDR uh, method from Teledyne LaCroix using a, a wave pulser. And that, that thing is good up to 
to 40 gigahertz or so, but our, our probes we limited to 26 gigahertz because of probing limitations. But basically, it's a it's a way of measuring how good a channel is using a a little a voltage wiggle that we send down the line and see how it see how it returns and see how much of it gets through. So obviously, a lot of meat on that bone, and I want us to kind of work up to to that measurement. Um, but in doing so, maybe it's worth backing up a little bit. And this is a, this is a hundred gigabit backplane. Um, and lest anyone, I mean, it, it, I think most folks may be coming to this kind of from higher up in the stack. And uh, it is th- th- this is really high speed stuff, and it is really physically challenging to get a cable backplane to operate at a hundred gigabit or, or this twenty eight gig NRZ in this case. Um, Arian, do you want to talk about some of the challenges that we had in the earliest ways we were kind of thinking about this? Yeah, so I want to like put a little asterisk. When someone hears 100 gig, what we're talking about is four channels of 28 gigabit signal, the 28 gigabot signal. Um, and for... For our discussion here, we're talking about a uh, a roughly fourteen gigahertz per, uh, uh, signal um, because you're measuring at you know half the frequency, the Nyquist frequency. Um, think back about information theory you might have encountered in in a computer science undergrad. Um, so we're looking. So what we're concerned about is a signal. Let's say up to about twenty-eight gigahertz, because you want to get the fundamental frequency plus then the first harmonic potentially, maybe even the second. But by the time you get through a little bit of the channel, all that is gone already. Because, uh, um, and maybe we can get to that later. But uh, there's just some interesting stuff around what Eric was saying earlier with the reflections of the ripples in a pond. Basically, a signal through a channel like this, every little disturbance in the impedance profile causes a little ripple and a reflection and so you you can see all those in the pictures that are in the in the in the the thread you can see all those reflections um but you were asking about the 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 challenges of getting this getting this done um well the 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 major challenge and so if i understand the question you're asking correct is that the the receiver on a chip has a a noise floor up to which it can measure, you know, this signal coming in. And you basically want to send a signal down a channel, down a, a cable, or but, but it's more than that. It's a cable plus the connectors plus the PCB. Um, and you need to keep that signal above that noise floor because otherwise the receiver can't receive that signal anymore and it can't make up uh, whether you send a zero or a one. Let's keep it simple for now. Um, and then it does a bunch of signal processing, even to artificially lower that 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 uh, noise floor even further. So they, they, there's a there's a there's a full on signal processing chain at the other, at the receiver end. Um, but that not, the 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 manufacturer of these chips give you these devices give you a specification that you need to live within. And in our case, for a 28 gig NRC signal. Um, they say a ball-to-ball measurement, so meaning where the where the where the two devices that you're transmitting between uh, are are soldered to the circuit board. Um, that needs to be you can you can tolerate up to 20 dB of loss, uh, meaning that most like a lot of the signal at the at the 
Nyquist frequency that we're interested in. That's roughly 14 gigahertz. Um, so you can absorb at that frequency. You can, uh, if you are less, if you, if your signal that is received is, is, um, above that 28 dB, uh, noise or 28 dB, uh, level, it will, the receiver will still receive at least something. Whether or not you can get a completely valid link out of that, that will be, uh, it's a little up in the air, but. And Arian, at each level, I mean, the term for this that I that I had not heard before, oxide, as I I've, I've said many times, but I, I'll say it again many times. This conversation that uh, I definitely every day I think I know how computers work. Uh, you know, I, I, the next day I learn I actually did not know how computers work, and I definitely learned a lot at oxide. Have learned a lot at oxide. One of the, the, the term that is used for the loss that is induced at each of these steps is called insertion loss, right? Yes. Um, which is kind of a, I don't know, Adam, have you ever heard of the term insertion loss? I, the, Never. As, no. And, and I guess, I mean, like, okay, look, a lot of things are poorly named, but it feels like insertion just feels like, I don't know, I feel like you're inserting something. And the the, the insertion is kind of the, and Eric, maybe you can kind of explain the origins of, of the term for those of us who are new to it. Yeah, insertion loss and return loss are the two main parameters that you look at. So you want insertion loss to be low. And you want return loss to be high. What that means is your insertion loss means I I stuck a signal into some channel and a lot of it got through. So the loss to me inserting a signal into a channel is low. And my return loss is high because I want all of the signal I insert into it to go somewhere else and not reflect back at me. So I have a lot of low return like, you know, like a bad return loss, and I have a lot of that signal returned back to me. And that comes from impedance mismatch. And that, that's the, like, you know, 50,000 foot RF guys rolling in their, you know, rolling in their chairs. But I know a lot of these, all these terms and the techniques and the methods used for high speed signal integrity all come from RF because they did it way before any of the high speed guys did. So this is all based on RF stuff. So like a VNA is fundamentally a, a, a measurement system intended for RF. So if you're measuring you know, radios, that's what you use. You use a VNA. You'd never use a TDR because it doesn't have nearly the, the range. You know, we can shallow, we can tolerate like 20 dB of loss. Uh, you know, your typical wireless channel will tolerate like 80 or 100 or 120 dB of loss without flinching. But in circuit board land, because our receivers are much lower power per bit, picojoules per bit or whatever, uh, versus a wireless modem, we have much lower tolerance for loss. Yeah, insertion loss and return loss are both RF terms. Looking at how much signal gets through and how much gets kicked back at you. Well, you, Got would, it. you would use that too if you're talking about any reflections, though, like in any, you know, channel. So, I mean, it's technically correct no matter what. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, I, and I, Eric, I guess that I was, so the insertion, the, the thing that's being inserted is the signal itself that's yes. being inserted. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Um, and I, Adam, have you been hit by impedance mismatch and, and reflections of you? This is like our, I, I feel like Adventures with Spy involved. No. Uh, so when you, so th- there is, th- 
one of the ways that I know Matt, I saw Matt Keeter here, one of the ways that in software you get burned by this is you can set the speed of a pin, <clears throat> which is how fast it will transition. And the speeds you can set are like very slow, like ridiculously slow, slow, and all the way up to like super fast. And you're like, I'm a software engineer. I want to set it super, super fast. fast. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I, I did. I, I fell for that same trap and, and Matt told me how, how that was wrong. And yeah. It, not, it, no. it is wrong. Bad. Bad. Go slow. Go slow because. Work it, with slow, use it. It, and you end up with a signal coming back at you that you think is the is the, the other end sending to you, but it's like no, no, that's you sending to you, and it gets very confusing. Yeah. So, a random tangent story is when I my previous company we had a, a twenty megahertz clock that was getting sent a bunch of places, and we need a, a lot of those clocks sent, and they had to be aligned with each other because of various reasons. But the only chip that would do that in a reasonable, you know amount of chips was a like a 1 to 28 or something fan out buffer that could drive like 1.6 gigahertz signals <laughs> which are you know absurdly fast and we right. had a 20 megahertz clock and we're like okay fine it'll be fine 20 megahertz it'll handle it no problem right and yes it will but it'll send send that out with a like six gigahertz edge rate you know an edge head bandwidth so we were setting a 20 megahertz clock with the sharpest edges known to existence and amazingly, that caused this problem because, you know, when you're sending a 20 megahertz clock, you don't need 1.6 gigahertz harmonic <laughs> right. coming in. <laughs> right. In fact, so they're, they're confusing. They're bad. <laughs> right. So who here <laughs> on the space has, a, has a, a, a good explanation for what impedance actually means? Because I've, I've, it's, it's a term that I use daily, and, it's a t and I have some amount of intuition for what it means, but it's actually kind of fuzzy to describe. There's a mathematical term for it, but that's not intuitive. I mean, uh, yeah, go for it, okay. Impedance in a non-math way, you can think about it as the amount of information that travels from one place to the next in terms of like how much you send in and you're analyzing the amount that you get out. So it can be a voltage. So I send in something at five volts. And over the course of whatever the period that I'm sending it through, it comes out a little bit lower. It's a bit, or you're sending, I'm trying to talk to you and it's noisy. And I say, you know, five words and you get three or, you know, so it's any, any characterization of the amount lost. Yeah. It's so the way I sort of, try to grasp it is you said you, you insert a certain amount of energy into a channel and that is characterized by a voltage and an, and an amount of current but these sure. are these are these are just uh sort of ways in which we can measure impedance but they're not the actual thing it, it, it's a measure of energy going into that channel and when we talk about this edge rate being too fast you're basically inserting energy at a really small small time delta you're pushing a lot of energy into that channel and if that channel uh is not able to absorb that energy at that exact rate then it is going to immediately reflect that back at you so that's where you talk about an imp impedance mismatch of an or an impedance discontinuity it's where where basically the amount of energy that the channel can absorb or or, or push forward like transmit for you is different from one place to the next. And that's like at an instance, there's, there's like a sharp edge where that is. 
And then at that point where these two things are, where, where, where the channel is not matched, where basically there are two different impedance, like values, so to speak, you're going to get a reflection that is going to come, come back to you because that energy needs to go somewhere because it can only absorb some amount of energy that, that it can, that it can handle. And then the rest needs to, it is preserved. It needs to go somewhere. So it will come back to you. That's the only place it can go. And well, then you can be a jerk about it and just say it's entropy and then be right off the time. <laughs> oh, sure. that guy. Sure. Oh, that guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the definite, the Wikipedia definition of characteristic impedance is the ratio of voltage to current, you know, in a wave propagating through a channel, which is great and probably, you know, mathematically correct and everything, but it gives you basically zero intuition about what the hell you're trying to do. And so <laughs> the only way I can think of it is, Okay, the impedance is the, the, you know, whatever that trace width and trace spacing to the ground plane we have to hit so that the, you know, the impedance in ohms matches both the transmitter source impedance and the destination receiver impedance. And that varies based on the standard. Like PCIe is, I think, 85 ohms or something. A lot of the newer stuff is 92 ohms. Uh, Single-ended stuff is always generally 50 ohms or 75 ohms if you're talking via broadcast. And there are reasons for those impedances, but basically it's you have to match whatever you need to based on whatever the transmission protocol you're using is. And in our case, we're using somewhere in the 90, 90 ohms-ish, 92 ohms, something like that range. But, but th those are all those are all conventions. So we all built our receivers no, around this idea of like, okay, let's all let's everyone try and build a receiver that so can take. There is a there's a reason that 50 ohms was chosen. I don't remember enough of it to go into the explanation for it, but there is a reason for that that you can yeah you know, the, the interested reader can look up. Yeah, yeah but, but but so I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the 50 ohm it's not a totally arbitrary number, but it is a it is a number we chose. There's there's nothing necessarily fundamental about why it couldn't be, say, 40 or 60 or whatever. It's just that we started to all use 50 because otherwise all you you need to match all these devices. You need to match all the pieces in the channel to ideally all be that 50 ohm so that you have no reflections. You can make this perfect channel that has no discontinuities in, the, in its impedance so that you can, like, you basically, as the energy travels through this, there is nothing that will get reflected back. And Arjen, when you say we chose 50 ohms, do you mean a totally naive question? Do you mean we oxide or we humanity? No, we humanity. Okay. okay. We so electrical engineering humanity back in, I don't know, the, the, the 30s, 40s, or whatever, when they started doing... And, and, but in, in this case, the broadcast industry picked 75. So a lot of rocket, oh, definitely older broadcast <laughs> equipment is at, is at 75. So, I mean, of course. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, of course. And just like, I feel like there's certain truisms that transcend every engineering domain. And the fact that two different bodies picked it, if there's, a, if there's an arbitrary number to be picked, you know that two different groups pick different numbers and then beat it about it. I mean, of course. But the, so, the, but this, this whole concept of impedance and like, Eric is absolutely right. When you're building a system, all you think about is this this impedance number. It's expressed in ohms, and you do your best to try and match it everywhere. And you get a there's a bunch of equations that you're using, and some of them are you know more detailed or complex. And then there's some shorthands that you use to get to those numbers. And then, but as a as a person writing software for for you know like pretty much forever, and then transitioning into electrical engineering, this was 
a couple of years ago, this was a very tough concept for me to grasp because I struggled with the math or the, or the physical perspective. I struggled with the mathematical perspective of this. And I, I had to sort of transition a little bit in the physical aspect because you can look at this from two, two different directions and you, you can look at it from a hardcore like equations perspective and it will tell you absolutely nothing or at least it didn't do for anything for me until I started reading some books that had a different ex- perspective. And then I like, oh, okay, there's, I started to build some intuition. Although, like I said, the reason I was asking this question early, can we define it? Is because it's so fuzzy. No one <laughs> seems to really be able to like intuitively tell us what it is. Which uh, is frustrating to a degree. Well, I, I mean, it feels like it is, and I, I'm I, it's so great to hear you kind of ask these super basic questions because it does feel like some of these things are like I'm I'm just having a very hard time with the intuition around a like a, a 28 gigahertz or 14, I guess uh, gigahertz signal is just. I mean, I, I'm so accustomed to that being so much faster than anything we can run a clock on. In an IC and an ASIC, to think that like we've got anything at 14 gigahertz, just and I get this. I guess this gets to your point uh, earlier, Eric, about like this is all RF, and when you're at that point, like it's 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 a radio that's in a channel, basically. Is maybe the better way to think about it. High speed serial links are crappy radios that only do two (laughs) levels. I mean, they're they're really just crappy radios. Yeah, Yeah. and they're they're crappy radios because they can. They can have idealistic channels. There's no external interference from, you know, your neighbor's Wi-Fi. There's no, there's no crap from the local airport blasting. All of this is very, you know, high-speed serial links are fundamentally an RF channel in a very, very controlled environment. Well, and we want to make them crappy radios because we don't want to spend all that silicon yeah, real estate on, on expensive <laughs> like analog front ends like for this yeah. right. and chip space is so we want we want right. to make this as simple as we can can make it and that, that's why for example with every step in generate like every step in technology generation so say for pci express these these receivers become more complex because we need to go to faster speeds which means that that noise floor needs to go down etc so we're starting to those those receivers borrow more and more and more out of like actual radio receivers and as a right, result they become more complex like 50, more power hungry yeah like 100 gig and 400 gig start using things like tech and you know, forward error correction because they know they're going to get bitter you know back in the you know 10 gig lane like bitter is like no you just they're so rare that you just handle them at a higher level and no worries. But when you get up to 28 gig, you know, the famous quote is like, Oh no, you, you're going to see errors. It's just how many. And you just want to make right. sure that rate's not so high that your forward error correction or your, you know, CTLE or DFE and all that stuff can't correct for them. And, and, and your radio, your, the radio protocols that we use for, let's say your, your, your cellular network or whatever, Use really encode or relatively complicated encoding schemes exactly for that because they have to. You want you you don't want to retransmit in that channel ever because that's expensive. So you want to recover as much of that signal as you can. So they, the radio world has been doing forward error correction for a long, long time because they they were forced to, and but but slowly more and more of that shows up in these serial receivers for, you know, wired Ethernet and PCI Express and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, they're crazily sophisticated. And I mean, like, and maybe this is a good segue, Tom, to you. And I, I want to get, we get some folks from, from, from Ancestor as well to, uh, to talk about, like, how do you think about the system in advance to know that, like, when we build it, 
we are going to have any chance of of having something that actually works. I mean, how do you uh, and and maybe Arian, you want to kind of serve as the intro to that? Like, how did we model the system? Well, we paid Ensys money uh, <laughs> to get software that will and it lets us spend many, many hours. Yeah. Well, it, but but also like fundamentally, it serves with like the piece of paper. You know, you need to go. Let's say you're going over the some length of coax, and you know how much loss there is in a you know coax per meter, and so you start building up. You know that the chip vendors told you you've got this many dB of insertion loss for your margin. And then you start sort of like papering it out. Can this architecturally work? For instance, if you, if you did, if you decided early on that there's no way you could um, meet that insertion loss spec with the amount of PCB that you had to go across and the cable length, then we'd be, you know, looking at like <laughs> retimers somewhere and then the retimer would have to fit in there. Right. So, I mean, it, fundamentally, it starts with a piece of paper and just like looking at the specs and making sure the specs sort of work out. And then you delve into it and like actually put it to the test and look at the physics, you know, make sure it actually works. Yeah, because I, the back the back of the napkin gives you sort of the rough estimate for like, is this even worth trying? Which we did. Right, so we, 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 right. we went we went yeah. to, you know, the, the cable manufacturer in this case, uh, we, we've been working with Semtech. And they gave us an estimate for like, hey, this is what our cable system can do. We've this is modeled, this is implemented. We've we've tested that, and then yes, but that assumes that you're doing everything right. That assumes that all your, you know, everything on your PCB is correct. That you're not basically losing more of that signal than you absolutely have to. And that's and so, where Ansys comes in. And that's where, <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's where we start to really dial that in, so that we build simulations of. The actual PCB, the actual traces on the PCB, the, the, the dielectric material between all the copper pieces, the vias, all that. And then you start to run simulations and you start to sl- carefully tweak all these pieces so that you improve that, that or you basically reduce that loss until you are as close to that optimal that you can, that you can hit. Uh, and then hopefully you, you by then have, me, have met the specifications and your link actually works. Yeah, so so speaking of vias, like we spent a lot of time looking at looking at vias, right? Tom? Like every, can you give a little bit of an overview? Yeah, so well, every time you know what, what if you were to look at a cross section of a PCB trace, <clears throat> for this sake, um, there's there's two classes of traces you could run on a PCB. What they call microstrip, which is any external routed traces, which are Half reference to error, and the other half is well, not exactly fifty percent, but but it's a it's not a uniform dielectric. Part of it's error, part of it's whatever your PCB FR four is, and so strip line are where you're totally um, embedded within two, let's say two shielded ground planes, and your signals have they're they're a uniform dielectric. Um, hey, so Tom, are those two yeah. different kinds of vias? Um, well, I'm getting to that. The uh, okay. the idea is that as we're routing across a PCB, the 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 cross section of the fields are really well behaved. We can understand them even like with a 2D field solver. But as soon as you approach a via, the via is basically a drill going from one layer to the next, um, and all of a sudden, where your return currents were really nice and uniform on your ground plane, now they they go into another ground via connecting the two ground planes together, the problem becomes really complicated. You've got um, physics that are not simple, and that's why we need <clears throat> 3D field solver to actually like 
put the geometry together and actually investigate what is going on and what are the, in other words, you know, you can look at the different inductances and capacitances um, through, you know, as the, the signal transitions from a TEM mode in the stripline PCB to this VIA, which is like a really funky, you're trying to make like a coax in the Z axis of your board right. going from the top to the bottom, for instance. Yeah, so and, you're going for something that is like nice 2D math that you can sort of still approach with your high school math to having to solve th like yeah. full on differential equations for a 3D art, like not an arbitrary 3D structure, but a very complicated 3D structure. And, and that quickly like surpasses what you can do by, by hand. the way, I'll say this is a very hard discussion to have without like showing diagrams and things. <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right, like totally. pictures are really helpful here. Yeah. Well, and I, yeah, and Adam, I don't know, in terms of like, I, I mean, don't, first of all, Adam, don't you just feel just like listening to this? Like we've entrusted all of this like rocket science to the pile of idiots at the top, recky driving this with software. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I just feel like about all of these software that I've seen or written that has just like abused the network or behaved terribly. And you're like, don't, I know I mean, we're, we're creating this beautiful thing, this this physical piece of art, and then and then and then we hand it to you. And then we hit it, I know, for, for some dumbass timeout that was like specified in like in like seconds when it's supposed to be milliseconds or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, my god. That's right. It, it, you know, back back in the day in Solaris, if you unplugged the cable, it would say link down cable problem. And I feel like I mean, even then it felt like a, a pretty unsophisticated diagnosis of what might be going on. <laughs> yeah. And now it's just like what why did we think cable problem was? I mean, there's so many problems that could that could arise. It, it, I know. It's just amazing that like and, and it, Tom, just to go to like what you're when you are kind of visualizing these vias where you are because unfortunately these are not uh, our circuit boards have multiple layers. Unfortunately, reality is a real pain in the ass. Yeah, um, yeah. The challenge is like in two areas. Basically, you have to get from the BGA, which is like there's, you know, everyone's probably familiar with the BGA. There's a bump and it has to have a circular pad on the top side of the PCB or the bottom in our case, the top. And you've got to basically get from that to one of the inner layers. And then you go across your board to the next connector of this, in this case, the Samtech air of six connector we're using. And you've got to have another via there to be able to get, go to the connector. So that's what the vias are really, as long as you can like only have the two vias, the via transition areas in the BGA and then at the connector. And so those are the two areas we focus on the most. And um, in fact, you know, like it gets really complicated because as you put a lot of vias through in tight proximity to one another inside of the BGA, <laughs> and you have traces routed through next to those and the voids and there's back drill clearances and all this stuff. You actually can have some of the RX layers coupling to the TX layers that are, you know, uh, maybe half a millimeter away. You can actually have some coupling through the void which again, this would be great to have a picture, but um, but there's like this really complicated way of seeing um, seeing the way the coupling modes can happen, and unfortunately, that isn't really clear until you can visualize it in 3D. The 2D CAD programs, you know, they give you like a 2D down view of like polygons, but but there's a lot more to it because you need to really understand what is going on in the z-axis, how how much space is between this and that, and, and the other thing, and that's where. Once you can extract a um, 3D geometry and then look at it in that world, or you get good at it after you do it enough, you start to like 
have a 3D view just as looking at a 2D. Okay. And this might be getting ahead of ourselves, but as we look at, as we do the math and do the simulation, do we just get back yep or nope? I mean, how do you how do you debug this thing? Like, how do you, no, you how do you figure you, you out where back and you get back an inscrutable waveform that has a bunch of little spikes all over it, and you have to assess whether or not that is good enough. And it's it's even trickier. Absolutely, it's, it you have to know you have to sort of test whether or not your simulation was valid. Like, did you actually set it up correctly? Because there's an art to this as well. When you have to like put a you put what they're called are ports. When you when you have a three D geometry, you assign a port. Um, then when it solves for those ports, it'll basically look at energy in one port and see how it comes out on all the other ports, and then it, it solves that whole set of equations. So you have a set of your S parameters that tells you what happened. If you only have four ports, that's one thing. But like we did an extraction on a larger chunk of the chip. That literally took two or three weeks on a 512 gig machine and had 48 ports. So yeah, I think similarly wow. when we were doing the uh, the uh, Samtech extraction, which uh, Samtech did for us because they have their connector model, I think that similarly took like a week or something like that. So these are non-trivial things, and, and you got to really know how to set it up correctly and make sure that like the answer you're going to get back is the right one. Because unfortunately you've spent all this time and it could be, oops, my port was, you know, put to the wrong reference and now the data is invalid. Right. Right. I mean, that must be very nerve wracking. I mean, because I, and obviously in any simulation you are trying to, to, to find as many ways as possible to check your model against reality. But these are in, Tom, as you mentioned, these are, these things are run for a really long period of time. Super sophisticated software. This is not. I mean, Adam, I feel like like the the kind of simulation we do in software generally is done with like an aux script, usually of like two or three lines. I feel like. I mean, I feel like the, the modeling we do is so unsophisticated by comparison to where we've got this actually like physical thing, and these electrons just don't behave very well. I mean, they, it's like we kind of have this idea of like, oh, these two wires are connected logically, so. Clearly, it's going to like travel along this path, and it's like no, no, no. I was in a meeting earlier today. We were doing some performance benchmarks. Were we using the right SSD? Well, we were using an SSD. So I mean, it's like a pretty gross uh, <laughs> right. by comparison. I know, I know, but it's so it, so. In it, I, it, so I know we got uh, Larry and and Robert from uh, who joined us from from Ansys. Maybe I, I don't know. And I, you're getting your first like real exposure inside the oxide. You may just be like, oh my god, these guys are turkeys. We need to. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, just don't ask us to create a, a network switch because we can't do that. Right? <laughs> there, there we go. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um so i mean do you first of all is is oxide's use case is this like a, a a common use case for folks that are are i assume that everyone has to do these kind of simulations before they actually build this stuff right because it's so high consequence to get it wrong well back in the old days if, you, if you're moving you know something at one gigabit per second not so much but now today um you know every little discontinuity on the line as you've mentioned conspires against you and um, yeah. having something that solves for the physics to well, what are those actions and how are they going to compile on top of one another using our simulators really makes a big difference. And yeah, you, know, so you, you, you mentioned, 
Well, I think there's a really good point here that is, and Eric, I know you mentioned this to me as well, Tom, you've said this as well, that like when you have loss, like you're never going to get it back. So every little bit in this, like what of it matters, all of it matters. Like all of the details matter enormously in this. Especially at these frequencies. So, you know, what the interconnect, like you look up the on the data sheet, the semiconductor vendor tells you you can stand 20 dB a loss or whatever it is. You have to actually, in, in fact, it's frequency dependent loss. It's a, it, the, the network, the, the interconnect looks like a low pass filter. So DC, you said earlier, right? Uh, a simple, hey, they're just connected together. So DC, sure, it marches right through. But the higher frequencies, 14 gigahertz, 28 gigahertz, is diminished a lot more than the lower frequencies are. It's a low pass filter. So any sharp edge that you'd like to send, like transitioning that NRZ signal from zero one, gets rolled over, it gets smeared out. And how much does it get smeared out? And then it gets worse, you stick a VIA structure in between or an IC package, some of the energy goes forward towards the, the receiver, some of it bounces back. Some of it bounces back to the transmitter and then bounces forward yet again to the transmitter. They start holding <laughs> upon one another. Yeah, so oh. the, the, the bounce back and forth thing can have some interesting effects because, you know, like let's say your fundamental is 14 gigahertz and let's say you have two structures that have impedance test continuities that are spaced just far enough apart that you get a standing wave at 28 gigahertz. And now right. you have this massive energy suck out at 28 gigahertz, and it basically looks like a notch filter. <laughs> and it just sucks out any possible information there and gives you the middle finger on your signal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a standing wave at 20 gigahertz. I'm just trying to like wrap my brain around that. Like, that feels bad. <laughs> well, and, and if, you, if you move those vias like five millimeters apart, it's gone, and you won't even see it. So, but and, if you and have those at just the wrong spacing, it just screws you so bad. And, and I think this, you're exactly right in the sense that one of the things that's important to, to uh, that I've always found in my flow of, of simulation is that, like, you start by looking at it in the frequency domain so you can at least get an idea of, like, at what frequency with the loss is. But then because there are all these time-dependent um, dependencies to a particular channel where the VIA actually lives within your data rate, that's yet another level of simulation that's really helpful to look, look at this in time domain to see what the eye actually is, because you might find some of the discontinuities. Like, this is where uh, via back drilling comes in, and you can really see it clearly, um, where there are some frequencies that that little structure resonates, and the wrong data rate at the wrong stub, you know, it could actually, you know, kill your, kill your line. So... It and, and Tom, can you just describe the eye because that's something that does come up. Oh, a lot. it's like, just what, taking like taking any uh, data transmission, and all you do is you you take a like if one UI is is one bit symbol. So at twenty, it's uh, at the twenty five gig that we're running at, it's forty picoseconds roughly. So um, basically, you overlay every forty picosecond chunk on top of one another, so you can actually get the aggregate of what does every single up down transition look like over one another. So it ends up creating this nice diagram that shows that looks like an eye whether it's open or closed is the terminology and it gives you an idea of like how much margin you have for your receiver thresholds right so you just get to like lay everything over on one simple view um over one yeah, and then yeah, it's a drive on the point the, the the open eye meaning there's a large difference between what is considered a zero and a one so that's easier for the receiver to to right. make and out then, and therefore and then pam you four you've got now four right. four levels so you know it just gets worse <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, Adam, have you seen the PAM4 eye diagrams? No. All right, so if you look at an eye diagram, you're like, okay, like I can appreciate that. That's like a clean eye, that's an open eye. It's like, but what happened over here? This one looks totally wrong. It's like, no, no, that's a PAM4 signal. Because that looks it, really good. Yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, and that looks great. Because as Eric mentioned, it's a cyclops, effectively. And you have, because you are, you are laying on multi, multiple voltage levels. Uh, apparently we're giving up on digital. Digital is like, has taken us as far as digital is going to take us. So, right. We, we binary well, if you look levels. at, uh, like Ethernet is, a, I think, a five level, something like that, uh, signaling. And there's uh, either the Ethernet, but. Gigabit Ethernet base T is still uh, using PAM5, and then I think uh, 10 gig over Twisted Pair jumped up to, uh, I think it's PAM16. PAM yeah, what? yeah I, I did a 10G, 10G base T5. Of, and it's it's 16 different voltage levels? Yeah, yes. 4 bits per single. Holy! Man, I I feel like it's like everything's a lie. Like, what's not a lie? It's, it's lower frequency, though, so you have well, that going for you. Yeah, you know? yes. Even those eyes yeah. are a lie because what you're looking at is something that's already been equalized. So really what's going yeah. in the receiver, you don't even know what it looks like. It doesn't even look like an eye. Yeah, you, if you broke it, like it just the, looks like magic. Oh, it goes. Yeah, this is garbage. Yeah, absolutely. We, we couldn't look at that on a scope. We had because it's so encoded. We we had to rely on DSP and the slicer to basically tell us how good we did. That's you know, it's a that instrumentation of this is you know all another part of the problem, which is yeah. Know, yep. So, it, all right. So before we get off the simulation piece, because Larry, I've got a question for you. When you got the input into the simulation, which I mean. Uh, it consists of things that you're getting out of these vendors. Um, the uh, presumably there's obviously materials consequences. I assume are you getting mm. and and how do you validate that that information? I mean, surely uh, just based on the number of errors that I have found in data sheets, we have found in data sheets. Surely that information is not always correct. How do you, does one validate that that information is correct? Well, we start we start with the ground based physics. So what we do is we go from the bottom up. Um, I should explain to the listeners what, you know, what we do. We have these remarkable electromagnetic field simulators, like this thing called the high frequency structure simulator, which does finite elements. So you mentioned differential via structures. Well, what happens when a signal approaches it? We, we look at a differential via, we input the geometry, you bring it in from your layout. You specify material properties like, uh, copper traces and, whatever material you're using for the printed circuit board, what dielectric material, you know, permittivity it is, what, what loss tangent. And then from first principles, we solve all those wave equations. And again, we were talking earlier about, you know, if you were to do this analytically on pencil and paper, it would take you six pages of math and a PhD degree in electromagnetic field theory to do it. But we do it on the computer. And so we're solving for the field. If a signal approaches that differential via, it can bounce off it and go back. If it, if the impedance is not correct, or some of the energy can go forward with the direction you want it to go. And we can, you know, take a look at how those happen. So that we can do that for an IC package, for the escape routing from the IC package. We can do it for vias, connectors, the cables that you have. And then we cascade all of those together into a circuit model so we can look at Frequency domain, as you mentioned before, what does it look like versus frequency, low versus high, how much signal can get in, what is the so-called insertion loss versus frequency. And then we can also look at a TDR, a time domain reflectometry. So you can say, well, where are the discontinuities down the line, right? TDR is really cool because you, you send in a pulse and you wait for the signal to come back 
whatever whatever it bounces off of, you can determine what is the impedance of that of that discontinuity and how much energy is coming back. And so TDR, we can do in, in simulation also, just as you can do it on the uh, in the lab. Yeah, that's really neat. It actually is giving me a flashback to our um, my algorithms prof who taught the class in FFT. This is a computer science class, and mm -hmm. and um, and I remember you know you, a, a lot of math in an FFT. And uh, this guy was a pure uh, computer scientist. Adam, we may have had the same prof. You may know, this is I know exactly. Uh, yeah. this, the, Phil Klein, God bless you, but you are a pure, they, they, not an engineer at all, not overly pragmatic. And someone in the class asked, like, what is an FFT for anyway? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know that they're that useful. And I was talking to what, of course, we went over to the engineering department and they just about declared war on the computer science department. I think they were going to, I think the engineers are actually going to march on the computer science building and just torch it because it's like, no, an FFT is only the most important thing in humanity. All of humanity rests on FFT. No, no. I mean, his specialty is planar graphs, which is pretty far from FFTs, or, or it's understandable why he would not be that interested. That's right. And he was forced to teach his class. You know, he was so, not, so, yeah. so, so they forced him to give back all the tech that relied on FFTs and then he had to walk home? Uh, no, that's it. That's it. I, I, I believe, Arjen, there were several similar kinds of suggestions that he needed to be, as punishment, he needed to be deprived of all innovations that relied on an FFT. Um, but Larry, it sounds like when you're, when you're sending that pulse back, part of the reason you can figure out where it's coming from is because of the frequencies you're getting back. Is that, a, is, is that correct? Certainly, you can perform processing on it like that. But a TDR method is actually really old. It was used with phone lines, and it was okay. used phone lines, telephone lines, and um, and cable TV. The, the guy with the cable TV truck that shows up at your house has a TDR device. And what they used to do is they it would literally just send a, a, a voltage that goes from low to high quickly, and that's gonna it's gonna basically you know sort of uh, crack the whip and send that energy down the line. And however long it takes to get down the line and back, that round trip distance, you can divide by two and say, oh, that's where the discontinuity in the line is. And they service, send a service technician down there to figure out where the broke break is in the, in the line. <laughs> because you know you know how fast a yes. speed of light is in that line. So you yes. can calculate the distance. So like yes. TDR sometimes will say like, I have a distance resolution of five millimeters and that's based <laughs> on how much how you know how fine of a time you can resolve and the propagation velocity of light in that medium. That is so exactly cool. Right. That, and of course, how, that makes that's how it came about. That's so you're, like the about. you're the cable guy being like, there's somewhere around here, there's a discontinuity. Like, so, within, like, so do I just start there and start counting five Mississippi until I get to the discontinuity? Yeah, yeah just yeah. really fast. Five Mississippi is five nanoseconds. And then send the guys with a shovel to dig at that location yeah. and they dig up the cable and fix it. And, that's how they and use it. Well, and they they still use that for like underground power lines. Do you want to know where a fault is? You yeah, send, you send a thumper out there and you thump the power line and you measure how long it takes to come back. So that's what we do with you know high speed interconnect also, but you, you can get a lot more information, right? You use a time domain measurement to to develop the understanding of what's down the line, and you can back calculate with simple mathematics. You can back calculate if you know the transmission line impedance. And you see what voltages are coming back. You can calculate well what must be the impedance at, at that location. So say you send a signal down uh, your differential transmission line on your printed circuit board, and you hit that via the amount of energy that the signal the signal that comes back. You can use that to calculate what must be the impedance at that location. 
And, and Larry, are you doing that in simulation? That's happening yeah. in simulation. Oh, that is really yeah. cool. And then, yeah, so Tom, so are you are you using that information to kind of like, all right, we need to change the layout here every day? Oh, no, well, most, cool. mostly it's the way with the way I use it are like a couple of different ways. When I'm doing a via structure, if I'm looking for matching, one way to do that is to look in uh, return loss, and um, another is to do it in the time domain. So you can look at the time domain, do a TDR on your via transition. And, you know, it's it's uh, it's a little tricky to do that because you've got to make sure that you mesh your structure to a, a good enough frequency that your time domain edge can, you know, so that, that the data is well formed for the the speed at which you're going to ping it at. And, you know, so there's like, but the, the tools help you with that. You can actually set up meshing based on what you plan the TDR with, which is really cool. I like that feature. And, um, yeah, so basically it's it's really helpful diagnostic when you're trying to just kind of like learn a little bit more about your circuit and you're trying to look for a way to tune it. Yeah, interesting. So I, I was because Tom, I was gonna ask you like how you are acting on the simulation data you're getting back. But and it sounds like you were doing that a lot. You were to it's a very iterative process. You yeah, have to like, uh yeah, it's it's very iterative. We'll run through I mean, and that's part of why for instance, before we ran that two-week simulation, we had we had spent a lot of time looking at little things and getting everything dialed in, you know, on quicker right. sims, and then you kind of build up to it. Right. Okay. So then that which makes sense. It's like okay, now we're ready. We we think that this thing is basically where we want it. We don't need it. We're not going to use the simulation data to iterate, but we are going to we want to validate effectively with our kind of final simulation run and get an idea. And so based on that, did we, I mean, it was, uh, I know we were optimistic going in to actually getting this thing physically in hand, but there must always be some apprehension about something that has been forgotten in the simulation, something we've neglected to account for and so on. No, we're perfect. And we never make mistakes. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. I was scared as hell. <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, so then we, so we actually get the, um, I, Eric, I definitely want to, t we, we got to tell the actual story of getting this backplane actually up because our, what we, we, we get our rev B sleds, uh, Gimlet rev B sleds. And we, uh, those of you who listen to our tales in the bring up lab, uh, remember our tales of getting the Chelsea O'Nick brought up and the 499 ohm resistor. And the gimlet uh, sleds are that's our compute sled into which the neck is being plugged. Right. Yeah. Uh, and definitely an Odyssey um of, for a bunch of folks. Uh and the, the, the on, on that one. So go listen to that that re recounting there. But so we get the nick up and it is what we're talking at at we're at 40 gigs, so which is to say I think 10 gigabits per per channel, but we can't get it to 28. Yeah, it just it bombs when it tries to go to, to twenty five per lane, which is one hundred gigs. And, the, and the, this this is a tale of like data sheets and, and stuff screwing us up yet again. Well, no, because they were like, "Don't <laughs> do this," and we said, "Okay," because you said, "Don't do this," we won't do it. It's not, yet, all right, so, so we yeah, go ahead, tell the story, Eric. Turns out, it, it there was a lot of jitter coming out of it, and we can measure that jitter using the very nice uh, uh, lab master scope we had from Teledyne. And we saw this just horrific jitter on the, the output, like way more than we expected. 
And they're like, okay, and jitter, jitter is essentially the, the difference between when we expect an edge to show up, you know, a transition and when it actually shows up. And that's measured in, you know, seconds. And that's, you know, usually pito, picoseconds if it's bad and femtoseconds if it's pretty good. So femtoseconds. Femtoseconds, yes. Yeah. E, e so yeah. Uh, if you think this is an expensive device to measure this, by the way, you're right. <laughs> and if you want to mortgage your house, you could probably get a down payment. Yeah. So the and so this is a Teledyne, Teledyne Lacroix scope, right? If I remember yep. correctly, and uh, Labmaster thirty six gig Labmaster, I think. And yep. and these are like half a million bucks plus, basically. Oh and yeah, they're, they're, they're gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're they're the cat's meow of high speed scopes. And these are things that you uh, that I mean, we're, I think we're still uh, we're saving up our allowance to buy. But you uh, you rent, or in this case, I think Teledyne Lacroix was very that was very helpful in terms of of letting us eval a unit. And we nah, I mean, this was this was the first hit of crack they gave us, and now now we're hooked. <laughs> now we're hooked exactly. Well, they did a good job. No, they so, did this deliberate. <laughs> it, but these things are super super expensive. I mean, these things are. Yeah. This is the kind of but equipment that you rent. Good. I mean, that's, but that's super good. what you have to have to look at a signal like this in real time. And so we looked at this and saw a bunch of jitter. We're like, okay, where the hell is the jitter coming from? Is it power? Because, of course, everybody goes to power first. You know, of course, it's power. So we looked at power, and it's like, well, it's not really showing us anything that's really that bad. And so we're like, okay, what the hell? Let's look at the input clock. And we thought the input clock was pretty good, and we measured it, and it's not really that great either. And like, well, what the hell? Like, I thought we fixed this the last one. And so we're looking at the clock source, and we're looking at the power of the clock source, because of course we're going to the power again. And it was looking fine. Like, there's some non-idealities, which we're improving on the next one. And we're like, okay, you know, this isn't, this isn't, there's like no, you know, smoking gun here. Like, what the hell's going on? And it just, like, something that was always bothering me in the back of my head, like, why in the hell doesn't this thing have a 100-ohm diff term? And a lot of chips have 100-ohm diff term internally for something like a clock input or even like high-speed inputs. A lot of them just have 100-ohm terminations as part of their receiving stru- you know, receiver structure. But this one and the T6, if you put it into LVDS mode, it did not. What it did have is 4K bias resistors, which are also needed for LVDS, to power and ground. But it did not have a 100-ohm diff term. And like it's not particularly clear in the data sheet like when you put it in this mode here's what the input structure looks like because of course they never tell you that because uh, it's probably ip from some other company and whatever so it's not spelled out and it's like well all right screw it i, I don't know what the hell else to try so i'm just going to try putting on diff term on there i put a hard on diff term on there and it, the clock looked you know, it still didn't look great but it looked a lot better from jitter i'm like okay well, let's, let's see Call Rick up. I'm like, Rick, you want to try firing this thing up? So he fires up. He's like, it just blinked. Like, what? It, 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 it trained. I'm like, shit. <laughs> That's right. So, so that, I mean, we the 499 ohm resistor that was the difference between life and death has now been trumped by the 100 ohm resistor that was the difference yeah. between life and, and death. And, and the thing is, like, if you look at the dev board, they're, they're Nick that they have does not have a 100-ohm diff term on their LVDS clock. And the, my hypothesis for this, and this gets into transmission lines again, is the clock source on their 
on their NIC, on their physical, you know, like PCIe by 16 NIC, is about a half an inch from their chip. Not even, it's maybe like a centimeter from their chip. And that, I think, is slow, is close enough that the edge rate of their source clock is not fast enough for that to be electrically long. Right. So even though they don't have termination, they never actually see the reflection because the they don't actually have enough length to get a reflection developing. It's a poor explanation, but basically yeah. something short enough and you know electrically short. Like if you put two completely mismatched things right next to each other, like not all the energy will get there, but the signal will still look okay. Ish. Yeah. So, and so to be clear, this is on the clock, correct? Yes, this is on the clock input to the right. Ethernet NIC chip. Right. So this is what, and so the clock, and so I, I don't, I'm not sure if you got, you got what the actual issue was. The, the, the clock was, was missing a terminating resistor. So it was, it, which I kind of view as a kind of an off ramp. I mean, this is a bad way of, of, of thinking about it, but an off ramp for the signal as opposed to just kind of bonking in. Um, and so th- we were getting effectively reflection on the line. And, 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 and jitter. And yeah. the spec sheet said specifically, not to put a resistor there. <laughs> they said. That they said. Oh no, you don't need that. Yeah. So I mean, this because is one of those things where it's like, oh, well, it's like yeah, you don't need that yeah, because it's so short. Okay. <laughs> well, and this is where you get to something that I feel we've learned again and again and again when. The, when you don't necessarily build from first principles and you have a reference design, you don't really know what's working by accident there. And in this case, like right. they were speaking kind of their truth, which is, hey, in this, in the designs that we have built where the clock is super close to the part, we haven't needed it. What they don't know is like, well, actually, you may have needed it. You just were kind of getting away with it. It was kind of working by accident. Well, not just that. If they actually fixed, if they actually added it on their NIC, their clock might, their input clock might right. have, have less jitter, meaning their PLL does better, their certies will do better, and therefore actually you can extend your cable a little bit more because you're eating less into the budget of your of your your bid periods. So, well, so, I, so I feel like this is kind of a punchline we got to work up to. And then Andrew, I want to get you in here as well because I know you've been looking at some of the 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 the, the scope output that we've been able to get you. Um, the uh, so you, yeah what what did it look like once we got that we, we we've done all the simulate we've done the paperwork to, to roughly verify it we've done the simulation the iteration with the simulation on the layout the big simulation multi week to verify that it's going to be we think this is plausible we find the missing hundred ohm resistor on the clock we get that resolved and what what does the what does it look like end to end it's gorgeous like. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Like it's still better from Tofino. Like that that chip is still putting out gorgeous, gorgeous signals. But even you know, even from the T six going out and our you know, some nine ideality, it like you don't expect the CNI. Honestly, looking at the, the at these things because the signal is usually so degraded and so crappy that the only prayer you have of seeing anything reasonable is by enabling every equalization method known to man on your receiver and sorry to ask what is equalization i'm sorry equalization is basically a way it's there's a couple of mathematical things that they can do to boost the high frequencies essentially in in a very four man's description 
like like they're saying that the, the channel is a low pass filter so you send a nice high frequency signal out and you send it through a channel that ends up with a low pass filter and you get a much more attenuated signal coming out of the receiver well the receiver knows that there's generally some you know characteristic of that and there's mathematical ways of boosting that that high, that lost high frequency information got it and there's that's that's one of the methods there's there's DFE, which is precision feedback equalization. There's FFE, T forward equalization. I think that might be only kind of better, but I, you, I, that's that's how my expert area of expertise. You you basically try to amplify specific frequencies again that you do you care about that are in relation to your fundamental frequency, in the hopes that you can by by basically artificially uh, uh, um, uh, making these these values like bigger. By amplifying this, you can recover more of the original signal. Yeah, and that's that's part of that really fancy scope is having things like CTLE, DFE, etc. that can do those kinds of equalizations, right? Like the chip does, because you can't actually probe. Well, it's impractical to probe on the die, right? So you have to probe somewhere else, and then figure out what it looks like at the die based on that measurement. And, and Eric, maybe now is a good time to mention the uh, the probe station that you that you built, which I think is pretty neat. Sure, yeah. The, the probe station is just, it's a collection of off-the-shelf parts from either Thor Labs or Masumi or McMaster Car. Uh, and its entire purpose in life is to hold microwave probes, which are basically coax, pieces of coax that are very, very small that have very pointy tips that are bolt-plated that touch down on a circuit board to try and measure the channel. And they're absurdly delicate. They're very, very sensitive to movements and vibration and things because they are very, very delicate. And they're basically designed for probing wafers that are perfectly flat and, you know, perfect. <laughs> right. But we're you know, we're using them to probe this like horrific, like mountainous landscape <laughs> right. PCB. Right. And so the you need some sort of mechanism to hold the board steady, support it, and then hold the probes steady and get them into whatever position you need them to interface with your BGA pattern or your connector pattern or whatever it is, and hold them very still for extended periods of time while the system does its thing and does all of its measurements. Right. And, so and this is the actual literal probe effect that we are, I mean, we, or yeah. when, I mean right, the, not distorting the system while we probe it is really, really challenging. Right. And also getting a good, like, connection between the probe and the system is really damn difficult. And so, you know, there's all sorts of stuff you have to deal with that. But basically, the, the systems that we looked at that were commercial were either um, <laughs> expensive or expensive? Well, Expensive or expensive, or even if they were really expensive, they were only able to do, uh, like, one board at a time, and we needed two. Right. And so, I'm like, screw this, this is stupid. Like, somebody should just make one of these things. So, I just made one. And I, in my previous job, I was on the verge of making one anyway, so I kind of had a little plan in my mind. And there's certainly <laughs> things to improve upon it, and it's, you know, not... Not great, not perfect, um, but eventually it, you know, I get a free moment, which is in short supply lately. But 
when I get a free moment, I will you know, publish the design, will open source it, and people can do with it what they will. Uh, but there's some feedback that Tom has given and such to, to make it better that I haven't been able to incorporate yet either. And, well, and I do think like, uh, I think this is a very common oxide theme that I was on the verge of making one in my previous job. I think is like true for many different kinds of one and many different kinds of jobs. I feel like do you think that that's kind of a common theme across the company? Is that everyone has got to come here with a chip on their shoulder about the kinds of things that they are uh, either sick of paying too much for or want to do on their own? Uh, that is definitely a theme. I sort of was guilty of that too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, no. Oh, and I mean, I'm not speaking euphemistically. I mean, this is true of, you know, uh, that we've done our own operating system. We've done our own, uh, like, uh, lots of things. I think uh, almost to a person and, and often <laughs> when it comes to, to stuff like this where, where it's like tooling, where it's like I know. at no other company and no other position could I make the justification of, like, we'll spend too much and get the wrong thing. And this is a great example where – we're now we're we're building this thing that is totally fit to purpose in in places where it's not you know it's it's our design and we can fix it. Yeah, I gotta say, like if I had like one piece of technology leadership advice, if anyone on your team wants to build their own tooling, you should always let them. I mean, I just like I th- 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 because in general, the people who want to build their own tooling have already kind of thought through the problem well enough that it is almost certainly not ill advised just because they're asking the question. I mean, we know the things that we're not going to build on our. Right? We know the things that are uh, th- that that you know that does exist. There are things we're not going to build on our own, but um, not yet. Not yet, exactly. Um, th- Larry, don't worry. Not simulation. Simulation software is not on the list. So no, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> software is safe. Um, but the um, and so and Eric, so with this with the probe station, we are able to actually because the thing I love about the probe station is it is strictly mechanical. There's no kind of a fancy robot arm here. This is like... No, that can't cost too much. Right. No, right. <laughs> it's a mechanical system, and there's a little like, you know, a little mic- microscope that plugs into a TV that I use, and you can lower it down and use knobs on three-axis things. And there's one feature on it that is like the one unique feature of the entire system in the fact that you can adjust the planarity of the probe, which is basically that you have these four very sharp, delicate points that have to touch down at the exact same time. And inevitably, like, nothing is in the same plane. So you have to adjust those four probes at the to, to be the right angle to touch down your board all at the same time. And the, the method I use adjusts that planarity or that angular mismatch and adjusts that without actually moving the tip, which is not very common. And I haven't been able to find it in any other station that I've looked at. So that's yeah. like the, the, the one salient feature. Which, yeah, that's well, that is cool. And I'm looking forward to getting the, I mean, it's going to be fun to get kind of our, your plans out there and, and because the open source it or whatever, and I'll let people go, go wild. Um, so we're, we're gathering the data and it's looking good. And Andrew, I know we were feeding a bunch of this data that was coming off the Teledron and LaCroix scope to you for some of the stuff that you've done on your GL scope client. Do you want to describe some of that work? Cause it's really interesting stuff. Uh, yeah. So uh, speaking of let your engineers build tools, uh, that's a policy I firmly subscribe to as well. So uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with GL scope client, it's a open source application that is essentially a, uh, user interface and front end for oscilloscopes and now starting to branch out into more kinds of heads with multimeters, network analyzers, and so on. But for the most part, oscilloscopes. 
and it consists of a object-oriented library libscope how that provides a API to oscilloscopes, and then Geoscope Planet itself is the UI in front of it. So I can connect to a Rigel, I can connect to a LaCroix, I can connect to a Siglet and have the same user interface in front of it, the same C++ API in front of it. I can load waveform data from a file coming from any of these scopes, and so uh, that's how uh, Eric and company were sending me the data from the webmaster is they were taking the files off of the scope, exporting it to LaCroix's waveform format, sending them over to me, and then I would load the .trc file and then process that waveform in exactly the same user interface as if I was sitting in front of a scope. That is, and, no, you are, so, all right, so just, I just repeat this, to, to kind of say this back to you, I think this is pretty amazing. You have implemented effectively the front end on this thing, so you can take data from our scope and pull it up on your own virtual scope and manipulate. Is that a fair summary? Um, I can acquire data from any source node, so it's built around a filter graph architecture. If you're used to GNU radio or any kind of like uh, audio processing pipelines and stuff like that, so the source node can be a physical instrument or it can be a block that loads data from a file. It can be a block that creates synthetic data. So we were talking about simulations earlier, for example. So a very common use case is to create a synthetic step waveform and then import channel response data as S parameters. And then you can apply channel emulation to that in order to see what either the uh, forward time domain transmission response or the reflected time domain reflectometer response would look like given channel data from say an S sorry, from a, a touchstone file. But you could also do the same thing with say live data coming off of VNA. You can have that the system just cares the input to this filter block is a magnitude channel and an angle channel, and it doesn't care whether that channel came from a file or whether it came from VNA or whether you generated it from some arbitrary simulation. It's just data flowing into blocks and flowing out of blocks. That is really cool. And the and I gather that are these formats always open? Or I mean, it feels like uh, there would be some temptation for bad vendor behavior in here that you must have sidestepped. Um, so vendors in general have been incentivized to provide APIs for equipment because production test automation and things like that are, you know, so many people buy scopes to tool up production lines in factories and test some product then you just need to go trigger on the same event over and over again you know once every five seconds a new thing comes down the assembly line goes onto a bunch of pogo pins you run a bunch of waveforms you make sure it meets spec comes off you do the next one you have to be able to script that the problem is the the previous state of the art had been using ascii text commands that were all instrument specific in order to be right. so libscope how does away with all of that it is still using that same api under the hood to connect to the instrument but it presents a unified vendor agnostic C++ API to you as the end user. So you can write code against an abstract scope that has four channels and a sample rate of at least 20 giga samples per second and a bandwidth of at least two gigahertz and supports a positive edge trigger. You can write your test case against that minimum set of requirements and then any oscilloscope object that you are given will work with it and you don't care what it is. That's really cool. That is very cool. Yeah, so one scope. You can connect to several scopes, and it's got a feature that allows you to probe a common test point with one channel from scope A and one channel from scope B, and then look at uh, the delta between them. It'll calibrate out the phase shift in your trigger cable, so now you can view the same, uh, say, eight channels, four from one scope and four from another scope in one user interface. And then, so could you describe some of the data that Arian and Eric got to you? Because I, I was really, I, I, I loved what you were doing with it, but I didn't understand it. 
<laughs> uh, so again, we're talking about the filter graph. And so the entire architecture of the application is built around this. You take a series of data sources, you apply a transformation to them, and you visualize the output of that transformation or you use it as the input to other blocks. And you don't necessarily have to you know, be seeing plots of every intermediate result, although you can if you want to. And so, um, in this case, the main data set that I was looking at a lot was uh, a uh, QSIGMI link, so quad serial gigabit media independent interface. It is four lanes of up to gigabit that are time shared on a single physical bus. So the individual lanes are running at 1.25 gigabit per second, and it's pretty much just round robin, send one 10-bit symbol from lane zero, 10, send one symbol from lane one, send one symbol from lane two, and then it, they just all take turns. And then there's, there's, a, there's a few little tweaks to the encoding because you know, you need to know those four lanes correspond to which physical port and so on. So they they change the idle character in lane zero in order to let you know this is lane zero so you can keep them synced. And Matt, this was because it, just to, folks may be confused where this particular network was coming from. That was using this high speed scope that we used for the high speed backlane, but that's on the management network, right, Matt? Yes, this is actually taking sure. a couple steps down in speed. So this is a six gig link rather than the twenty-eight gig link that's the main backplane. This is running between all of the servers, uh, all of the service processors. Yeah. So what's what's actually going on is there are four uh, hundred megabit, I believe, at the far end, but they are multiplied up to one gigabit because the the link actually has a minimum data rate it can run at. And so the way that serial gimme works is if you have data going at one gig, you send each byte in sequence. If you have data going at 100 meg, you send each byte 10 times. If you have data going at 10 meg, you send each byte 100 times. And so you always end up having the same data rate over the link just because some of this hardware doesn't like running too slow. Anyway, so once you have these streams of... Uh, bytes coming from each of these four links. Again, you just interleave them, send them four times as fast, and the bytes take turns and so on. Anyway, so the nice thing is that the signaling within each of these lanes is, again, serial gimme, which is essentially regular uh, gigabit Ethernet, 1000 base KX or base SX and so on, same line code, um, other than the support for 1000. And so we were able to write a, we had an existing filter block in JustScope Client that recovers the clock from the link, another one that takes the uh, analog waveform and thresholds it to give you a digital waveform. Then you feed the recovered clock and the digital data into another filter block that decodes 8B10B. And then that gives you a sequence of uh, control characters or data bytes. And then you can feed that into the new block that I wrote to work with this data, which just takes in a stream of 8B10B symbols and outputs four additional streams of 8B10B symbols at one quarter of a rate. So it determines which lane is lane zero because that one has the uh, K28.1 instead of K28.5 as the idle character. And then it, so once it's recovered the sync and it knows which lane is lane uh, zero, then it just takes all the incoming data Again, round robins it. Okay, your lane zero, you go out this port. Your lane one, you go out this port. And it creates four streams of data at one quarter of the rate. Then you can take those data streams, you can feed them to individual protocol decoders for a serial gimme, for example. And that will then decode up to Ethernet frames. You can then apply another decode on the end of that that decodes, say, IPv4 headers. Or you can add a sync node that outputs to a PCAP file and look at it in Wireshark. So you can cascade all these different all these different filter blocks independently in any order you want, depending on what kind of application you have. 
Exactly. They are strongly typed. So, for example, and this, this does confuse some new users, and it's something that we'd like to work on as far as making the GUI kind of infer type conversions a little bit. So, for example, it is illegal to apply a RS-232 protocol decode to an analog signal because RS-232 is a digital protocol. It expects a digital input. And so you first have to apply a threshold filter to convert your analog NRZ signal into a digital signal. And once you have a waveform of type bool rather than of type float, you can then apply the RC32 decode to that and so on. But yes, so as long as your input is legal for the data type that the filter block expects, you can cascade them arbitrarily. You can basically make an arbitrary decoder for any kind of data you want based on the based on the data that you have. Like, okay, I have some arbitrary A B ten B thing, so I'm gonna put a CDR block in there and I'm gonna put a you know threshold ring, all that all those kinds of blocks in series and I can basically have you know very a pretty good start to a you know, custom protocol decode for anything. Exactly. The underlying libraries are all open source. Uh, there is a plugin model. So if you make your own decoder that you don't want to release, it is completely possible to make a binary blob protocol decode that fits into this API. Now, right now, since this is still kind of a work in progress, there's no binary stability. So releasing a blob would be ill-advised because five commits later probably won't run anymore. But architecturally, it is possible. Uh, anyway, so you can write your decode as a plugin or compile it into the main code base and, you know, submit a pull request for it as upstream and so on. But now your decode, so let's just say, hypothetically, you could make a decode for, say, Gigabit Ethernet, which we have already, but say you're writing a new one. You could write a decode that would take in 8B10B objects and spit out Ethernet frame objects, and then you could take your new decode. So this is what we did here, actually. So I've written the decode for Serial Gimme, and then... Since then, output of Ethernet frame objects, I could take the output of that block and feed it into, say, the IPv4 decode that I already had. Yeah. Because as long as output is the same data type, the, the next stage doesn't care that this is a filter I just wrote. It just sees Ethernet frames, and it's like, oh, Ethernet frames, I know what to do with those. Yeah, that is really cool. And I, I think we, uh, uh, Matt has got a great blog entry from uh, Matt. When was that? Two weeks ago? A week ago? I can't even remember. All the time is blurring together. Um, yeah, it looks like it was uh, two weeks ago, something like that. Um, but a great blog entry on going from the scope to the uh, to actual Wireshark output. Yeah, Larry, I'm not sure if you realize this, but we're actually doing we don't we're not actually just building one switch. We're building uh, well at least two, arguably three. Um, we we've got uh, our our main switch has got a lower speed switch on it for the management network. So we were actually doing a bring up of two switches, um, not not just one. So it's been. It's been exciting times around here. Um, so, so one of the, the Eric, I want to get back to one of the things you were saying about you know we get this whole thing up and it looks pretty glorious. Um, and Larry, in particular, a question for you: How often do you kind of go back to like, okay, we've simulated this. Let's go to the actual built artifact and how how did how did it work out? Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, well, maybe maybe my colleague Robert, who's also on the line, could tell you a bit more war stories out of the trenches of doing these things himself at Microsoft. But um, yeah, usually it's, it's as as I'm hearing on this call is um, it's it's you you keep working at it until you make it work. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of that that happens, and and things come up, right? Oh, I didn't terminate a particular uh, transmission line. I need to add a different resistor. Uh, you know, and the vendor didn't tell me to do that. It, you know, there's a lot of physics going on, and they're not going to cover all those cases, and that's why 
stimulation comes around and is useful. Uh, going back and doing the sort of um, post-mortem, I suppose, is, is what you're asking. I think that there are, you know, a lot of our longtime customers that have been doing this, they, they've come to rely on the software and you get good at yes. it if you're doing it all the time. And then you, uh, then you, you know, you, 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 you get that faith in, in what, you, what the software can do and what you're doing. The software will tell you exactly the answer precisely for what you fed to it, but whether or not that matches the network that you're designing in reality is another story. Yeah, if you fed it a pile of crap, it'll give you an answer based on that pile of crap. <laughs> and it'll be right. Right, exactly. <laughs> it'll be right. But you fed it a pile And of that's crap, why a lot so of people spend a lot. Yeah, go ahead, Robert. I was just going to say, that's why a lot of people do spend a lot of time doing simulation measurement correlation, uh, because a lot of times you might need to tune some of the parameters of your simulation model to get it to match what you're seeing in reality. Right. You know, you might get a certain dielectric constant from a vendor, but that might not actually be the, the actual value you need, you need to use in the simulation to get everything to nicely align. Yeah. Or you're, or you're getting weave effect, which you didn't necessarily model, because that requires a whole hell of a lot more simulation time. Yeah, and even yeah. things like if you have surface roughness, how do you account for that? Are you accounting for too much of it or not enough? Yeah, I was there, just there's a lot of different factors. Surface roughness is like one of the poor, most poorly specified thing from the vendor, and in and, and requires really everybody to characterize it for themselves, pretty much, it, as far as I know. It, okay, okay, so surface roughness. Can you? I mean, yeah. this feels like it, we zoomed so so my comprehension. Yeah, the the dish. The issue is that. For, for one, there's a thing called skin effect, which is that the higher and higher frequency you're transmitting across copper, the electrons skate across closer and closer and closer to the surface. And at the frequencies we're talking about, the skin depth is microns, um, microns deep on the surface of the copper. So that means the resistance loss in the transmission line that you're, um, that you're calculating or losing across the entire transmission line depends on what that surface looks like. It's not a nice, polished, perfect piece of copper, it's actually intentionally rough on one side in order to uh, improve adhesion to the epoxy layer. Oh, and so, man. <laughs> right. So oh, they, they make it rough on purpose on one side. They oh, polish man. on another. So that is also why you want to create your stack up in a way that you want to more closely bias the polish side so that most of your losses are sitting there. It's it's all these details that you got to dig into and understand and how you're constructing the whole, the whole oh, shebang, you know? Yeah, and like, and like your idealized notion of a trace being this perfect little rectangle that sits above and below infinite ground planes is also, of course, because... Oh, yeah. Your trace trapezoidal trapezoid. effects. Yeah, exactly. Or if it's on the surface, it's a trapezoid with maybe an inverted trapezoid on top of that. <laughs> Plating, exactly. Yeah, there's yeah, a lot. Get, and then you get the... You know, your skin effect, and you get the fact that you use enig plating, right? Well, nickel is actually pretty crappy for RF. And it's magnetic, so it and has it's magnetic. Yeah, more other problems, which is why we don't use microstrip or external yeah, layer uh, right. on any nickel. of these, these high speed traces. Nickel has a really shallow skin depth compared to copper. And so not only is, well, it's not even pure nickel, it's nickel phosphorus alloy. They have to add phosphorus to it so it'll plate better. And I think it affects the mechanical properties a little bit too. And so you've got your nickel phosphorus plating on top of your copper. So now it's got a shallower skin depth. So your signal is traveling in less material than it would if it was pure copper. And the resistivity is about four times higher than copper. 
it, so which what, is why we do micro strip only. Or, okay, sorry, strip right. only. <laughs> sorry, other way around. So, all right, is, where do we use the, the kind of the phosphorus doped nickel? Where, where's that being? Everywhere you see copper on our board, external layers, gold. That yeah, has, that, that layer of gold is angstrom thick, and the what's underneath, in between the gold and the copper, is actually a nickel phosphorus alloy, like Andrew was saying. Damn it! Whereas it's enig, electroless nickel immersion gold. So, like electroless nickel is a type of plating method for putting nickel onto copper. And then immersion gold is basically like this gold flash plating that makes the solderability a lot better, but also doesn't put so much gold on there that it's expensive and you don't have gold brittle gold embrittlement of your solder joints. Because too much gold is also a bad thing. Computers are really complicated. How does any of this stuff ever work? It's just amazing to me. I, you know, there, are, there are all these like memes going around about like we don't have enough electrical engineers. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, we don't have electrical engineers. Jeez, who can keep this in their heads? Yeah, it's it's just remarkable, and it's interesting that I mean, so surface roughness, Tom, is like one area that is particularly tough to navigate, and it sounds like it well, has a real it, effect. And in fact, somewhere around like around ten gig days, the resistive losses became on par with direct dielectric losses, just based on. And again, this kind of gets into what is your impedance, for instance, in order to create an impedance of let's say. 50 ohms, um, your geometry has to be a certain width and a certain distance from the dielectric, right? And so, in general, this is all yet another complexity that you're trying to, like, you fit your PCB into a certain yeah. overall thickness, and I have to get so many layers into that. So then that, you know, all of these things cascade to say, in order to route the board to make it work, you have to do this geometry and then that geometry, you go and look at the losses of it, and it's like, generally speaking, um, about 50 50 is what i found on the boards i was designing and so resistance is 50 50 50 what do you mean so so the resistance so what there's two types of primary loss in a in uh in most of pcb we'll just talk about like resistive loss i.e literally lrc so the r part and then your dielectric has losses due to um well, there's lots of fun physics there, but nevertheless, like uh, your dielectric loss constant is what sort of dictates that primarily. So we can pay for less loss in the dielectric by buying better and better dielectrics that have lower and lower um, DF or the uh, dissipation factor. And so we do that. We pay for a really good, um, a really good, very low loss material, but you still can't get very you can't get that good on copper so resistance losses are still dominating in in most cases you can improve that by making your trace wider because literally you add more copper but that is yet another problem because if you make the trace wide that means you have to make the dielectric thicker which means you have only so many layers you can fit in the overall right. thickness of the board you're trying to achieve yeah. so all of these things so resistance is bad right <laughs> that yeah uh Oh, and if you make your copper too smooth, your board falls apart. Right, exactly. I mean, clearly there's a reason yeah, for the roughness, but for the, for the adhesion. So your, so your board will literally delaminate if you make yeah. this thing. That's, yeah, that's, boy. That's, that's uh, you, you know, I, I, I've, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I feel like the PCB is missing a definitive history. I mean, there's so much stuff. And I feel like I'm 
always learning something that is extremely important, like the the the, the adhesion and the, and the surface roughness, which I had no, I'd never heard of, and is yet a, clearly a very important factor in trade off. Like this stuff is. Dull. And Eric mentioned fiber weave effect. That's another fun thing, you know, because the the fiberglass is literally woven in and then uh, uh, cured in a layer of epoxy. And, and so you get these little micro dips of dielectric constant across the board, depending on which axis you're on. And so one of the mitigations of that is to rotate all of your artwork by, you know, ideally it would be 45 degree and then 22 degree, but like that, that costs a lot. So 11 degrees sort of state of the art where everyone like, you know, manages that. So you're trying to route it some odd angle to this orthogonal weave, which has little dips and valleys. And then, you know, yeah, more it, fun it, things it, to deal it, with. Is that something that like we are able to capture a simulation? Do we have? To yeah, yeah. What, not by sim simulation is difficult, but for measurement, we 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 can capture it, and and that's one of the things um, that one of the bits of work we will do in order to determine. Like, there's lots of different ways of of mitigating it, but the the impact is that if you had a differential pair and you're routing along a board, you think they're well phase matched, but lo and behold, one of them might be sitting you know, under like a slightly higher dielectric constant than the other one, it will go slightly faster and they will then be off by a picosecond or two picoseconds or whatever. And it, you know, at a 40 picosecond eye, this stuff really matters. You know, right. Stuff. Man. And, and Brian, maybe Chesi just to add to that. Now is in 150 minutes. We're, we're, we're trying to beat 300 femtoseconds of jitter on clocks and so one picoseconds that we get skew out of a pnn that's a lot it's, it is you just undid all the work that you did in the it's totally yeah robert sorry you were, what you were saying oh no problem i was just gonna say i've actually seen people um define small sections of of a design and analyze the fiber weave in simulation, they'll actually draw in the fiber weave as well as the epoxy to see how different angles of rotating are going to affect, you know, how much loss you might have or, or any uh, uh, problems you might have from that fiber weave effect. Yeah, that is really cool. I Did mean, they ever write any papers on that? That'd be fun to watch. Go to read. Uh, I, I believe so. I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, I have seen it done before. That's really neat. Um, and I mean, the, the upshot is, you know, and this has been, you know, from from piece of paper all, through simulation all the way through. I mean, we've got a then this is the advantage of doing this thing kind of from first principles and, and simulation intensive and so on. We've got a backplane that seems to be doing pretty well. I mean, it's Aryan, it must feel very satisfying to have taken this thing from its initial conception to, as you say, it's a measurement two years in the making. Yes, absolutely very satisfying. And also, like I said in the tweet, a little unique because we know the two systems that will be connected. Whereas if you are building a, a switch that you sell in the market as a, just as a standalone device, uh, now you need to live within the specification that the IEEE standard, uh, dictates to you. So you're using, you know, some of these ballpark figures that they, that they put in these standards. And then, uh, you know, as, if everyone, um, uh, keeps adheres to them, then you, you're going to most likely end up with a, with a system that works. But it might mean that, for example, with a particular switch and NIC configuration at these higher speeds, that the DAC cable that you used right. to use that is two meter might not actually be working anymore. So now you need the one and a, like the, the one and a half meter DAC cable might be the longest you can get. But in our case, because we control both both sides of this link, 
and we very precisely control what the link itself looks like because we're sourcing all of these individual pieces and we're carefully selecting them and matching them and making sure that all the, the you know that we ring out all the little bits of performance that we can get. Um, we're able to pr- build a backplane that is actually fairly complex. There's just multiple connectors in there, pretty long piece of copper to uh, to go from one board to the next. But we're able to measure that and, and, and build some confidence that by the, by the time we're done, this thing will actually work because we've seen the worst case. We understand which cable lengths we'll be, we'll be observing. We can, we, can, we can do some checks on the quality of these cables, and these are built to very, very tight tolerances. Um, and then we can measure that and we can characterize that. And then, you know, we built, we built a little bit of buffer and a little bit of margin in there, but the, it, it basically gives us a very good overall picture of what the system will be used, like the context in which the system will be operating, which is, which is pretty cool. It is really cool. And it's I, unquestionably, this is, this is a hard path to go build all of this from first principles. I also think like, and, and, and so Eric, so, so, uh, real talk when this thing was not working, when we were not able to drive this to 100 gig, what was the, to what degree were you kind of vomiting in a trash can or wondering if, like, have we screwed something major up or we do have confidence we're going to nail it? No, there's, there's a reason that I travel with lots of antacids. <laughs> there you go, right? I got a lot of indigestion from this and I, I didn't realize, like, how much this was weighing on me until we got it working and I slept really, really well. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. But it, it the, the satisfaction that you get after working on this for so long, and you know, not even nearly as long as Arian and you and everybody, but the time that I've been working on it and seeing it come and getting it connected with our longest cable and have it have basically zero FEC corrections. Because as I said before, you kind of expect FEC right, corrections. Right, right. This would be forward error correction. That it, yeah, that, so this, yeah. Like you assume there's going to be bit errors and they have that, you know, we have FEC enabled to, you know, correct for those. And basically it's on none. And you just that is like, really great. That's just amazing. Yeah. This warm, fuzzy feeling like it's Christmas morning or something. <laughs> nice. Well, that I think is a great note to, to end on. Um, you know, this is a, this has been a huge team effort. I mean, I think, I think, I think part of what I love about this problem is that it requires every single link in the chain needs to, needs to work and anything can actually introduce, uh, you know, insertion loss that you don't want or what have you. And I think it was really fun to watch all of this come together. Um, and Larry, Robert, thank you for joining us as well. It, it was, it was, uh, obviously fun to put, fun to put your software to work. Um, and hopefully you've enjoyed. Uh, getting with it, getting with a team that's actually using it in anger. Um, and, um, oh, we appreciate it. Absolutely. And, thank you for having us. Yeah, you bet. And, uh, thank you everyone. This has been a lot of fun. Andrew, thank you too for your work on GL scope client. Um, I mean, you were the, the open source work is really, really important and we're very excited to see it. And the uh, that you're making. Oh, uh, and the, absolutely. Yes. So, uh, bringing, open source software to a domain that that's thoroughly needs it. All right. Well, Arian, thank you very much for kicking this off with this tweet. It was a measurement two years in the making. Um, Adam, I, I, I assume I can speak for both of us when I say it's been extraordinarily educational as always. Absolutely. Uh, it is amazing that anything works at all. And now can we please, uh, 
those lunkheads like us in software, we, we, our, we, it is our responsibility to get our software to run correctly on this unbelievable fabric. So we really need to, let's, let's try not to be such fools. Adam. Yeah. Don't waste any bits, please. I don't waste any bits. So we, we work hard for together over here, right? We got, exactly. <laughs> we we, we got to clean it up. All right. Thanks everyone. Uh, next time it's going to be uh, Kate talking about supply chain. That's going to be a great discussion. That's going to be next week. So really looking forward to that one. Um, and uh, Robert Larry, thanks again. Thank you, everyone. Uh, and see you next time.